Hey there, everybody. It's your boy, Patrick, and I'm back with another Body Shot podcast episode. And over the weekend, we had a couple of different events, but the two that I'm going to focus on are the Wilder versus Fury rematch, as well as the Paul Felt, the UC Fight Night 168, I believe, card, uh, Hooker versus Felder. So we'll see. But first, um, let's talk about some news in the combat sport landscape. And the three biggest pieces of news that I've seen this week that a lot of people are talking about are, one, UFC, uh, uh, the UFC has now set a date for Jose Aldo versus Henry Cejudo. For we'll see here, UFC 251, I believe, or 252. Okay, Jose Aldo versus Henry Cejudo for UFC 250, and Max Holloway versus Volkanovski 2 is for UFC, we'll see here, 251. So UFC 250, we have Jose Aldo versus Henry Cejudo, and UFC 251, we have Volkanovski versus Max Holloway 2. So why is this big news? Well, the reason why this is causing so much uh, controversy in the MMA community is that um, a while back ago, Israel Adesanya was inside... Uh, was expected to make his first title defense against Paulo Costa because Paulo Costa just defeated Yoel Romero, making him the clear number one contender for that division. Sorry, I have a little bit of a runny nose today. But unfortunately, Costa ended up getting injured and he was forced outside. Uh, he was forced out of the fight. So what the UFC did was that they booked uh, who, uh, Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero, uh, Yoel Romero as the first title fight. Even though Romero just came off a loss from uh, just came off a loss to Costa. Now, at first, a lot of people were understanding about this because, for one, Romero just fought for the title against Robert Whittaker, and two, Romero is a beast. He's the scariest fighter in the middleweight division. So a lot of people didn't find any problems with that because Robert Whittaker, he was a uh, you know, he just got knocked out by Israel Adesanya, Jared Kanir. Uh, a lot, just a lot of the middleweight, uh, a lot of the middleweight contenders were unavailable. Like Jared Kanir, I believe, was injured. Darren Till just had his fight with Kevin Gaslam, and I can't remember what the exact story was with Darren Till, but he was either injured or they weren't sure if he would be able to make weight or something along those lines. Anyways, Yo Romero found found himself in the title shot with Israel Adesanya. Now, the controversy is is that a lot of people now are saying that rankings don't really matter with the UFC anymore because they're giving everybody... They, now there's three people in a row that have... I saw stats, like something within like 68 or 69 days that the UFC has given two other people, Jose Aldo and uh, Max Holloway, an immediate title shot after a loss. So, we got three fighters fighting the champions in three different weight divisions for the title shot after coming off of losses. So people were understanding about the Israel Adesanya versus Romero title shot. And to me, there isn't that much controversy for the Max Holloway versus Volkanovski. That, that's, the, that's the one that just got announced the latest. So it was Israel Adesanya versus Joe Romero that got announced first. Second, it was Henry Cejudo versus Jose Aldo for the championship UFC 250. And a lot of people are upset about this one in particular because Jose Aldo just lost to Marlon Moraes and his bantamweight debut. And if you look at the bantamweight, uh, if you look at the bantamweight rankings, there are a lot, a lot of fighters that you know, you can say deserve a title shot against Henry Cejudo. We got Aljamain Sterling, who's on a uh, who's on a big streak right now. Peter Yan. I thought Peter Yan was the obvious next contender in line for the belt. And then there's Corey Sanhagen. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. We got Aljamain Sterling, Peter Yan, 
Corey Sanhagen. Those are the top three individuals that probably deserve the uh, title shot against Henry Cejudo. Marlon Moraes just uh, had a win over Jose Aldo, but he just also lost to Cejudo and he just got knocked down. It doesn't seem like people are that interested in him fighting Cejudo anytime soon. And that's what a lot of people are mad about. So, what should the UFC do? To me, honestly, I feel like Jose Aldo, yeah, he probably doesn't deserve the title shot against Henry Cejudo. But at the same time, there is this thing where it seems that like every time a UFC champion does lose, uh, especially a dominant UFC champion loses to a contender, the UFC is all, uh, very willing to give them a, a media title uh title shot or a rematch to the a rematch for the champion like Frankie Edgar when he lost to Benson Henderson he got an immediate rematch BJ Penn got an immediate rematch against Frankie Edgar uh Cody Garbrandt got an immediate rematch against TJ Dillashaw so there is this little there is a little bit of a you know a theme with the UFC that they give uh title or I also think Max Holloway I think Jose Aldo also got a media rematch against Max Holloway after he lost to Max Holloway the first time. Let me just double check here. Max Holloway, Max Holloway, do 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 do. Max Holloway. We'll see. He fought do 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 twice in Jose. Yeah. So against Max Holloway, Jose Aldo got a, re a media rematch. So um, there is this theme of media rematches against. The UFC champion, so that I understand why they would give Max Holloway a media rematch against uh, Volkanovski. But in the same frame, uh, I feel like that's a little bit more understanding. But at the same frame, there are a lot of people in the featherweight division that I feel like deserve a title shot. Let's see. Well, the two clear contenders I think that are in the featherweight division that do deserve a title shot right now. Uh, either Zabit, Magomed Shiropov, or the Korean Zombie. To me, I think the Korean Zombie should have been the next uh, the next person in line for the title shot because uh, he just went on a killer's roll against people. He uh, knocked out, since his return, he's knocked out Dennis Bermudez. He had that fight with Yair Rodriguez where he was... He lost, unfortunately he lost. He got KO'd the last second, but he was controlling the whole fight up until the very last second. He also knocked out Frankie Edgar. He also knocked out Renato Moicano. And I feel like he's the clear next contender. Zabit, he's on a winning streak himself, but his resume just seems a little bit less impressive. His last two wins were against Calvin Qatar and Calvin Cater, however you say it, and also Jeremy Stevens, who right now, Calvin Qatar is ranked number 10 and Jeremy Stevens is ranked number eight right now. But the Korean Zombie just beat Frankie Edgar, who's ranked number 6, and Renato Moicano, who's ranked number 7. His fight with uh, Yaya Rodriguez right now is ranked number 5, just below the Korean Zombie. And Dennis Bermudez is not ranked anymore. But he was a very good... Uh, Dennis Bermudez, very, very uh, good, uh, good featherweight. Very strong wrestler. Decent striking. So to me, that... Um, there are two clear contenders in the featherweight division. Even though I feel like Zabit, he's not actually like a clear contender. I feel like he should fight somebody. I, I would really like to see a Korean Zombie versus Zabit uh, contender match now. Uh, or title eliminator because now Volkanovski versus Max Holloway has been announced. But yeah, the Bantamweight division definitely has three clear contenders that can all go and fight Henry Cejudo right now for that belt. But for some reason, they're giving it to Jose Aldo. Now... Going back to what I was saying about people giving the champions rematches right away, if you remember way back in the day, Jose Aldo versus Ma Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. Now, Jose Aldo, after that knockout, really pushed forward for a rematch with, the, with Conor McGregor, and there's two sides to the debate. One was that Jose Aldo was undefeated for 10 years, and he was... The champion in the UFC for however long, I think it was like something like six years 
or a very, very long time before he lost to Conor McGregor. But on the flip side, this is what happens a lot of the times is when a contender gets destroyed and not destroyed, but loses very, very quickly to a, the, the, the title challenger. The title challenge, there's uh, now usually what happens is the person who just won the title or and also the fan base will say, oh, look, that person obviously Jose Aldo never stood a chance against Conor McGregor because look, he got knocked down in 13 seconds. That doesn't tell you. That doesn't actually mean that Jose Aldo didn't didn't stand a chance against Conor McGregor. It j just literally means that he got caught within 13 seconds. It's actually happened. This uh, the same thing happened to Jose Aldo or Cub Swanson when he fought Jose Aldo, because Cub Swanson, everybody was you know on the Cub Swanson hype train. Jose Aldo knocked him out in like eight seconds with a flying knee, and then Cub Swanson was never close to getting another title shot of Jose Aldo because everybody on the internet said. Why would there be a title shot if Jose Aldo can clearly destroyed Cub Swanson in eight seconds? What that again? That didn't mean that Jose Aldo just like you know not you know he he has maybe he has Cub Swanson's number, but it doesn't mean that every single time he fought Cub Swanson, he's gonna knock him out in eight seconds. It means that he caught Cub Swanson early with a very like crazy technique, double flying knee. <clears throat> So in my mind, back in the day when the UFC didn't give Jose Aldo that immediate rematch, this to me kind of feels like their way of apologizing to Jose Aldo. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, Jose Aldo barely, uh, he, went to, he went to split decision against Marlon Moraes. And I don't think Moraes would... I, I, Personally, I thought Jose Aldo won that fight. I feel like in the first round, it was those two quick left high kicks that kind of stunned Jose Aldo that gave Moraes the fight. But overall, I thought Jose Aldo uh, dictated the pace. He was the aggressor. And not only was he the aggressor, but he was landing more shots against Moraes than Moraes was landing against Aldo. And now people are just pissed that Jose Aldo making his debut in Bantamweight, even though he lost, is getting a shot at Henry Cejudo. The other contenders in the Bantamweight division, especially Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling, are also pretty pissed about this whole scenario and a lot of the MMA fan bases. To me, personally, I don't mind this fight because Henry Cejudo, even though he's changed up his... Uh, he's changed up the way that he fights. He's Before, he used to be just an overwhelming wrestler. Now he's kind of adopted uh, adopted that stri karate striking base, that in and out, you know, point style fighting karate style. He's still predominantly a wrestler, and Jose Aldo, his best performances have been against wrestlers, like you know Chad Mendes versus Aldo, Jose Aldo one, Jose Aldo versus Mike Brown, Jose Aldo against Jose Aldo just always does his best against grapplers and wrestlers. So this fight, to me, is still a pretty interesting fight. One, it'll be interesting to see how Jose Aldo deals with the point-style karate stand-up of Henry Cejudo because the last time Jose Aldo fought somebody with the kind of like taekwondo karate background was Conor McGregor, and he got knocked out pretty quickly against the, uh, Conor McGregor. It'll be interesting how well that translates against Henry Cejudo, but also kind of just tells you how much Jose Aldo still has in the tank. He could come in there and maybe he puts on one of the best performances of his life against Henry Cejudo, or he gets blasted and destroyed by Henry Cejudo. It'll just be a very good indicator of where Jose Aldo's career is at and where he's at as a fighter right now. But I do understand the hate that is coming from a lot of the MMA fan base because, yeah, Aljamain Sturry, Peter Yang, Corey Sanhagen, three, three very legitimate, dangerous contenders. Especially, to me, Peter Yan is the guy who's sticking out because I feel like he's going to be he's going to be the pantomweight champion, pretty sure. I got a good bet about Peter Yan. He's just got that nice, his very crisp uh, boxing, very, uh, very aggressive. He's not an aggressive pressure fighter, but very good pressure fighter. Has a very strong wrestling base to back him up. I really, really like that guy. Max Holloway versus 
Alexander Volkanovsky 2. It's still a decent fight. Um, that first fight with Max Holloway and Volkanovsky, Volkanovsky did a really good job of, for the first three rounds, basically just point fighting with Max Holloway. Max Holloway always has troubles with things like leg kicks, and Volkanovsky went to the leg kick very, very early and was catching Max Holloway a lot with the leg kicks. And then as the rounds progressed, he thought there was a little bit of a shift of momentum. I felt like in the first half of the fight, Volkanovsky was doing really good of getting in with the kicks and then using the kicks to get in with his punches. And as the fight got on, uh, went on, he got a little bit more comfortable. Just He kind of stopped using the kicks as much and got really comfortable stepping in with uh, using his hands to get in on Max Holloway. And that's when Max Holloway kind of started pulling the fight back. I feel like if you look at the record, uh, Max Holloway versus Volkanovski. Uh, we'll see what the decision was like. 48-47, 48-47, 50-45. So one judge saw the fight completely different than what other judges saw. And 48-47, I think I remember the fight being like that for uh, Max Holloway, where I think the last two rounds was when... When uh, Matt Falkonowski started abandoning the late kicks, that's when Max Holloway started catching up. So it's not like this is a fight that's going to be a blowout or anything like that. I really feel like, you know, it's it's going to be up to Max Holloway to make those adaptations to deal with the late kicks. So he was getting pressured and late kicked. So it would be interesting to see how he deals with the late kicks. I think I remember him switching. the. He was getting late kicked a lot when he was standing in his orthodox stance. But then he switched to his southpaw stance, and I feel like that's when Volkanovski started using less leg kicks and started coming in with the punches. And that's when the fight started getting, uh, started, you know, it wasn't so one-sided. Max Holloway was still able to catch Volkanovski catch, uh, coming in from the southpaw stance. And then when he, I think he switched back to orthodox near the end of the fight, and Volkanovski never went back to the kicking as much, so standing in orthodox wasn't as big as a problem. So it'll be interesting to see how Max... It was basically the point fighting uh, point fighting and leg kicks that got Volkanovski the win. It'll be interesting to see how Max Holloway deals with that. And then there's Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. And I feel like that's the one that's the most understandable because, yeah. Robert Whittaker just got knocked out and I believe he got... Um, there was some rumor about him having to give like his uh, daughter a bone marrow transplant or something like that, but I don't think that was true. I think he just like was sick or injured, or, and that's why he couldn't. That's why he was out of his fight with Jared Cannonier. Paulo Costa got injured. Yo Romero was the only one who wasn't injured. Jared Cannonier, I believe, was injured, and Darren Till. I forgot exactly what the story was for Darren Till, but Darren Till versus Israel Adesanya would be a fucking sick fight. I think I would really, really like that fight. Israel Adesanya does a really, really good job of, um, you know, using feints and fakes. And he does a lot of pivoting. Like, one thing that you'll notice about Israel Adesanya is that the way that he lands his counter shots is that he likes to faint, with, uh, come forward, fainting a lot. And then when the opponents come forward to him, uh, when the opponents start making a move, he'll do a lot of pivoting off or stepping off the line and hitting the hitting his counter shots on angles. Whereas Darren Till does the same thing where he comes forward and he does a lot of feints himself and he does a lot of kicking, but his style of fighting is a little bit more like Conor McGregor where it's the in and out type of counters where he will step back usually to his left side for that open side left straight counter, especially like, so southpaw, so southpaw versus orthodox. When you have southpaw versus orthodox fighters, what you'll see a lot is that the southpaw fighter will come forward, and when the orthodox fighter tries to come, uh, tries to strike, usually they'll against the southpaw lead with their right straight because their lead hand is obstructed by the southpaw's lead hand, and the southpaw will jump slightly to their left or pivot a little to the left and hit them from the open side with the southpaw straight, left straight, and that's what Darren Till does a lot. So you got two counter strikers who like to come forward with feints and fakes, and I think that'd be a very, very interesting fight. I really like that fight, actually. Hopefully that happens soon. Hopefully Darren Till gets... I think Darren Till's fighting... I'd like to see... Honestly, Darren Till versus a lot of these guys would be awesome to watch. Darren Till versus Jared Kanier, Romero, Costa, Whitaker. Those are 
sick, sick fights. Honestly, if you wanted to, if you wanted to push Darren Till into title contention, I would probably put him against Uri Hall or something like that in the meantime. So he has somebody who's a respectable name in the middleweight division. But I think uh, Darren Till would have a really good chance against Uriah Hall because Uriah Hall is a very left-sided fighter, meaning that he likes to kick with his left leg, jab with his left leg, and throw spinning back kicks with his right leg, but that all comes from the left side. And a lot of the techniques that you use when you're fighting a softball fighter, a lot of your left-sided de- uh, techniques get denied because of the just the way the southpaws match up against orthodox fighters. It's usually the rear side, so the orthodox fighter's right side that is doing a lot of the hurting. So let's see. So that's basically the news in the MMA sphere. Oh, also Justin Gaethje and McGregor. Rumors are that, that they're in the works of making that fight happen in the summer. That is a sick-ass fight because... Gaethje, <clears throat> Conor McGregor, you know his style. He likes to come pressuring forward with like uh, with kicks, and then he waits for his opponent to lash out, just like Darren Till, and hit them with the counter left straight. Justin Gaethje, we all know him as the pressure fighter. He likes to come forward, and until recently... His style of fighting was that he would come forward, gloves up, head down, and basically he kind of had this catch and pitch style of fighting that he'd take the take the hits on the he'd walk his opponent down. They would try to strike him. He'd take the strikes on the top of his head or his forearms, and he'd either counter with big uh, with a big right hand or big leg kicks, and that's how he would wear them down. But recently, Justin Gaethje has taken a little bit more of a measured approach to his fighting. He still is the pressure. He is a little. He still is. so his last three fights were against James Vick, Donald Cerrone, and Edson Barbosa. And against James Vick and Edson Barbosa, he still did the pressure fighting, but it was a little bit more measured. He was coming in behind like a dipping jab. He wasn't there to uh, just take the hits on his forehead and then hit back. He was actually trying to. He was doing a good job of not getting hit as he came in. And then against Donald Cerrone. He didn't really pressure. It was more of like a kickboxing match, but uh, he ended up getting the knockout on that fight as well. This is where the fight gets interesting. So Justin Gaethje now has that little, uh, a more measured style of fighting. And it seems like an improvement because he's getting hit less. But Conor McGregor is the type of fighter that loves to fight somebody who's going to give him time to think and move. And Conor McGregor loves fighting those type of people so he can get his counters off. If you remember the first, uh, if you remember the second Nate Diaz fight, Conor McGregor, in the first two rounds, he was dropping Diaz a lot because Diaz was trying to have a boxing match with uh, McGregor. McGregor was hitting him with leg kicks. Nate Diaz would try to deal with the leg kicks by, uh, you know, uh, Nate Diaz because he was getting leg kicked, tried to. Uh, open up with punches, and Conor McGregor would counter him. Uh, About halfway through the second round, what Nate Diaz started doing was that he said, fuck it, and he put his uh, box, like he put the classic uh, boxing guard up where you just have, you just tuck your chin, you just have your forehead protruding out of your guard, and you just have your arms up. Like, you imagine like the Mike Tyson peekaboo style fighting. Nate Diaz just tucked his chin and started walking down his opponents. I started walking down Conor McGregor. That's when Conor McGregor had trouble because he, uh, um, Nate Diaz wasn't opening himself up to the counter and Conor McGregor started freaking out. And then Conor McGregor's game plan was a lot about leg kicks in that fight. And he would be backing up because Nate Diaz is walking him down, and then he would try to throw a leg kick as he moves backwards to try to get Nate Diaz off him, and that's when Nate Diaz would open up with punches, and that's when he started catching Conor McGregor. So Conor McGregor has trouble. The way that Justin Gaethje used to originally fight with his head down, chin tucked, with his arms up, kind of fighting a little bit more reckless, waiting for the opponent to hit him so he can take the hit and fight back or throw back, 
that's the style of fighting that Conor McGregor has trouble with. So it would be very, very interesting to see how Justin Gaethje would come into this fight. Does he still try to be measured with his approach the way that he's fighting now? Or does he go back to his, you know, balls to the wall, double forearm, head tucked, chin tucked style of fighting against Conor McGregor? I really, really like that fight. I don't know if uh, it was just rumors. I don't know if it's even real or anything like that. But that would be an awesome fight. And if McGregor won that fight, it'd be obvious that they would send him into title contention against the winner against Khabib and Ferguson. But if Gaethje won that fight, he's uh, they would like. I think everybody would be rallying for Gaethje to get the title fight. So this is a win-win, and it'd be an amazing fight. That's a highlight. That's a that's a fight that can headline a UFC pay-per-view bout without a title. A lot of the times, the pay-per-view bouts, they usually have to have a title that headlines the card. Even, you know, Nate Diaz versus Jorge Masvidal, they had to make up the baddest motherfucker in uh, the baddest motherfucker belt. So people would, it would add a little bit of interest. But Gaethje versus McGregor is a fight that I don't think you need a belt to generate interest in. You got two. You got McGregor, who's the megastar, and then Gaethje, who's an insane knockout artist. That a lot of you know, he's um, that that's uh, this this is a really really good fight. I really really like that fight. That would be an awesome awesome fight. I really hope the UFC tries to make that. Anyways, okay. So now back to the two events. Rambled on long enough about the news. So, uh, which one should I start with? I'll start with the Hooker and Felder fight because there is, I feel like it was a little less... It obviously wasn't as popular as the Wilder and Fury fight as well as I feel like uh, there was, uh, there's a little less controversy surrounding the fight. Not the fight itself, but the aftermath of the fight. So, Paul Felder versus Dan Hooker. This is an awesome fight because you had Dan Hooker, who is kind of like that outside rangy fighter, versus Paul Felder, who is kind of like the, the, the guy who loves to get into scrap. He is the type of dude that loves to get in on an opponent, and he's very, very good in the clinch when he's up close. Basically, we got the long-range fighter versus the up-close fighter. And at the beginning of this fight, it was... Um, it was all Hooker. I, uh, it was all Hooker, the, ver the very first round at least. Hooker did what Hooker does best. And he came out and he was fainting. He came out, he was, in his, he was bouncing in and out. And he did a lot of fainting and faking. And he did a lot of circling and staying on the outside of Paul Felder's range. And Felder, was, the first round, all Felder could do, all Felder was doing was that he was biting on the feints. He, he was uh, throwing... He was throwing punches when what would happen was that Hooker would faint, Felder would bite on the feint and throw a punch or a kick. Hooker wouldn't be there to take the punch or kick, and then Hooker would bounce in as Felder would return to his guard and catch him with a, like a, com, uh, with a punch. Or uh, what Hooker was doing really, really well at the very beginning was that he was going to the calf kick very, very frequently. The calf kick is the... You know, it's kind of like the new trend in the calf kick is like the new trend in MMA where people are starting to kick below, kind of in like the below the knee in the shin calf area because one, it's way harder to catch a calf kick because the main danger of throwing a low kick, especially if you're throwing a naked, is that all that the opponent has to do is brace their leg and they can uh scoop up your leg as you kick their thigh and that is basically an easy takedown a free takedown for your opponent and you know you get taken down once in the fight and you get held down for three minutes you've lost that round unless you can do very something very very significant on the feet but the calf kick and there's also less danger because uh, of the there's less danger of the check because with the with the normal low kick into the thigh what opponents will do is that even though a lot of people don't check kicks in MMA still, what will happen is that 
fighters will lift their knee, check the kick, and the sweet spot to check a kick with is like the kneecap and the top of, like right below your knee. That's when your shin bone is the thickest and your kneecap is obviously very, very thick. And if your opponent hits either of those parts with their shin, they're either going to get really hurt or they're going to break their leg. Like how Anderson Silva broke his leg against Chris Wyman's knee when he threw a naked low kick. With the calf kick though, the worst thing that could happen is that you go shin on shin your shin hits your opponent's shin as they try to check and it sucks but it sucks for both of you guys and if they do and the thing with the low calf kick is that the you can't really really check them because the normal technique is to lift your leg and then turn your shin outwards to check the kick but if you lift your leg what's going to happen is that your opponent is going to end up kicking you lower down your leg near your ankle or the bottom of your shin, where your shin bone is way less uh, as thick as the top of your shin. And it deals just the same amount of damage. So Hooker was coming in with the low calf kicks and he was catching Paul Felder a lot. And anytime that he felt like he was in trouble or Felder was able to step in on Hooker, get the timing down, Hooker did a very good job of grabbing double underhooks in the clinch. And he would run Felder to the fence and just hold him there. And it looked like, uh, you know, double underhooks, very, very powerful position, especially if you use the, if you post your head underneath the opponent's chin to kind of like spread them out. Very difficult for them to get any offense going, especially if your underhooks are very, very deep. Your opponent, um, what you'll see a lot in MMA right now is that people, if they do get their own overhook, it's really easy to turn that into an elbow. But if the underhooks are very deep, it's really, it's really hard to turn your upper body into the elbow effectively. And it looked like Paul Felder was very stunned about, uh, like he really had trouble dealing with those un double underhooks. And then around two starts, and Hooker, same thing. He starts coming in, but he starts getting a little bit more comfortable. Instead of landing the one calf kick or the one uh, punch, he starts adding a little bit more to his combinations, throwing two, three, four punches at a time, or you know, two punches and a calf kick. But what this ends up doing is that it gives Paul Felder time to, because now you're that that's kind of the trade-off. You're in the pocket for longer when you're throwing combinations at your opponent. So your opponent. You know, they may take more punches, but you're in the pocket longer for them to throw something back and potentially catch you. And what Hooker, uh, what Paul Felder was doing really, really effectively was that Hooker, Hooker would jump in, throw, get, a, get a combination off, three-punch combination off. But as he left range, Paul Felder made sure to throw a low kick. And he would catch Hooker leaving, uh, leaving strike, uh, punching range, and he'd get caught on his lead leg with a low kick from Felder. And Felder is a very strong low kicker. And it looked like the low kicks that Felder, because, you know, it's either, to me, it looked like that, because Felder is a very, very thick guy. And Dan Hooker is more of like the in and out. He kind of has like more of like a karate style, boxing style fighting. So I don't think he can, he didn't, well, what it would have looked like it was that, Felder's low kicks were having a way bigger effect on Hooker than Hooker's low kicks on Felder because in the first round, Hooker landed something like six or seven or eight low kicks and Felder still moved really fine. Like it didn't look like it compromised his movement that much, but when Felder hit Hooker with two or three low kicks, it looked like it really compromises, uh, compromised Hooker's movement because then as the rounds, uh, rounds went on, uh, especially even near the end of round two, you know, at the beginning of round two, Felder was able to only get like one leg kick out as Hooker left combination range. But as the round went on, every time Hooker stepped in to throw a combination, Felder started landing a punch and a low kick. Uh, uh, not only just a low kick, but also a punch or a punch or two. So it looked like Hooker, because his lead leg was getting so damaged, he was having trouble leaving range. So it looked like for the first round and a half, Hooker had Paul Felder's number. But basically near the end of round two, three, four, and five, Felder started turning it up because Hooker couldn't move as well around the ring. And 
he kind of stopped fainting and faking. Near the near the end of the fight, he completely stopped fainting and faking against Paul Felder. So every time he stepped in for a combination against Felder, there was none of the, you know, none of the misdirection that he was using before that made it really safe for him to get in on Felder. And Felder, you know, his favorite the fight that he wants to fight is when his opponent is in close with him where he can land his you know short elbows and knees and short punches and kicks so as the fight progressed hooker slowed down felder sped up basically he didn't speed up but he was able to catch up with hooker and it was the, the tides turned it was hooker trying to survive it was hooker trying to survive for the last three rounds we had Felder, now instead of, uh, uh, in the first round, you had Hooker was circling the cage really well and Felder was following. But now round three, four, and five, Felder did a very, very good job of cutting the cage and stepping, instead of stepping and following Hooker, he would, every time Hooker would take a step to his right, Felder would instead take a step to his left and start cutting off the cage. And as the fight went on, Hooker went from not touching in the first two rounds. Hooker didn't. Back, Hooker's back was never close to the cage. But at the end, uh, in round five, he was stumbling along the cage because Felder was doing a better job of catching, uh, cutting off the cage because Hooker has slowed down so noticeably. So every time, so what was happening is that every time Hooker was stepping in for striking range, he would get his own punches off. But Felder just seems to be like the harder puncher. And his punches were having a way bigger effect on Hooker than Hooker's punches were having on Felder. As well as the leg kicks were, the leg kicks were, leg kicks were basically the, uh, the, dif the, the difference maker in this fight for Felder. <clears throat> and then I believe in round, it was either in round three or, it was pretty funny because I thought that even though Felder started to catch momentum in round two. I still felt like Hooker uh, won the second round. And then round three, I felt like Felder had basically churned the tide on Hooker and won that round. But uh, uh, apparently, if you saw the stats, Hooker was out, uh, Paul Felder outlanded, outlanded Hooker in round two, and Hooker outlanded Paul Felder in round three. So I was just a little confused because I thought Hooker round, uh, won round two and as I was striking Paul Felder in round two and Paul Felder was really turning up in round three but the stats showed that Hooker was the one who lost round two and was winning round three. But round four starts and round, uh, but in round four and five what we saw, this is what I really like about lightweights. Is, uh, what, this, what, what made this really, a really, really good fight is that what makes a really good fight for me is that you see the change in momentum and the change in strategy from uh, from uh, the fighters, and they have to constantly adapt to what's happening in the fight. You know, the fights where it's a blowout one way versus like you know what you watch like a John Jones fight against like Anthony Smith. It's just John Jones dictating dictating the whole fight because John Jones is just doing John Jones' A game and Anthony Smith isn't adapting or anything like that. But in this fight we had Hooker who at first was doing really good with his point fighting. Um you you had Hooker leading the fight with his point fighting. Paul Felder started getting leg kicks in, so Hooker's point fighting became less effective. And now Felder could was able to step in on his combinations and and Hooker wasn't able to do as well as before. And then Hooker um, did to me what was the smart thing. Uh, he started shooting for, he started ducking in for takedowns and grabbing uh, the clinch. And what he would do, and especially in a fight where it's mostly, it was predominantly striking for the first three rounds. When you're in a base, you're in a kickboxing match, it could come to a, it's a really big surprise when all of a sudden your opponent ducks in on you and grabs a clinch or a takedown. You know what I mean? It catches people off by surprise. A lot of Donald Cerrone's success at welterweight was that he would draw people into a kickboxing match. They would try to pressure him and they'd start uh, over committing on a swing and he would duck in for a takedown. And even though they weren't great takedowns, because 
your the opponent was stepping in on him and their their hands weren't anywhere near their waist and they couldn't get their hips back in time, Cerrone would still get the takedown. And that's basically what would uh, what would happen here. At one point in round five, I believe, and near the end, Felder went for uh, he started swinging really hard and in the in the middle of the combination, Hooker ducked in for the takedown and Felder swung past him and Hooker was able to take his back and get one hook in and push him to the fence. So Hooker realized that he was losing the striking exchanges and started going to the clinch way more often. And the thing that he was doing uh, well was grabbing the, he would grab the double underhooks and push Felder against the cage, but he really wasn't doing anything with it. It was more that he was holding it. And uh, what he would do is that he would switch from the double underhooks to a body lock, and then he would throw in one hook. And he still didn't, he, uh, there was never any threat of a choke or a submission from Hooker, but in the eyes of the ref, and obviously it's the eyes of the judges, when you have, if, you ha if you're behind somebody, you're holding on to them, and you have one of your hooks in, people know that the next logical step to that is that the second hook is going to come in, and all of a sudden you're in danger of getting rear naked choked, and being on somebody's back is basically the most powerful position you can be in in MMA. And so Hooker, you know, obviously wasn't doing anything with the body lock or the double underhooks or with his one hook in, but it looked really, really good. It looked like he was controlling the clinch. He was con controlling the clinch. He wasn't doing any damage out of the clinch, but he was controlling it. And uh, essentially what ended up happening in the last minute of the fight was that Hooker, uh, off the body lock, ended up dragging Felder down and in the last minute of the fight was able to control was able to hold Felder down and I feel like that's what ended up winning Hooker the fight even though he didn't do anything from the bottom or when he had Felder down he didn't do anything in my opinion so ended up being a 40 it, uh, Hooker ended up winning uh, a split decision which to me could have gone either way. I honestly, in my own personal opinion, I had Felder winning round three, four, and five because, again, every time Hooker did grab a clinch or double underhooks or took him to the ground, he didn't do anything with it. And Felder looked like he was landing the more damaging strikes. And, you know, Felder's eye was all fucked up at the end of the fight. It was swollen. But Hooker's, it looked like Hooker's jaw was broken or something because there was a big, it looked like there was a golf ball sticking out of his jaw. And even when they're, uh, in the post-fight interview, when Dan uh, Hardy was asking Hooker who would he like fight, who would he like to fight next, he, he like could barely talk. But uh, yeah, it was that was an awesome, awesome fight. I love lightweight the most, like lightweight and featherweight and bantamweight. Those are my three favorite divisions in the UFC because they're the deepest division. Lightweight is lightweight is the most deepest division in MMA because that's where the the average weight that. The average male who competes in MMA falls into lightweight, into the lightweight division. And it's it's such a crazy, crazy um, division. Like, okay, I'm going to read out the top 15 of the lightweight division besides Khabib. We have Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, Justin Gaethje, Dan Hooker, Cerrone, Paul Felder, Kevin Lee, Al Quinta, Edson Barbosa, Diego Ferreira, Gregor Gillespie, Charles Oliveira, Islam Makachev, and Alexander Hernandez. Literally at that top 15, besides Al Ali Quinta and Alexander Hernandez and maybe Edson Barbosa, any of those fighters could literally become the champion of the lightweight division on any given day on a good day. That's how deep that division is. That's insane if you ask me. Like that division is fucking awesome. So um, Paul felt, I believe Dan Hooker, what he ended up doing was calling out either Justin Gaethje or Dustin Poirier. I feel like out of those two fights, those are both like decent fights because Dustin Poirier, um, Dustin Poirier and, uh, Justin Gaethje, they do seem like they would be like the type of fighters that would have trouble with the in and out movement, the feints and fakes and the, you know, outside game of, uh, Dan Hooker. I feel like I feel like Dustin Poirier would probably be the safer fight for uh, Hooker because Justin Gaethje. Like uh, the thing is that Dan Hooker hates leg kicks. If you watch his Paul, uh, if you watch his Edson Barbosa fight and even the Paul Felder fight, 
lay kicks have a really, really, uh, you know, have a really, 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 this, they do have a, like, a noticeable effect on Dan Hooker. And Justin Gaethje, as I mentioned before, his old style of the catch and pitch style of fighting where he just walked forward and anytime the opponent would throw a punch at him, he would counter with like either a big right hand or a big low kick. Just as Dan Hooker was stepping in on, you know, Dan Hooker was having trouble as he stepped in on Paul Felder. Paul Felder took the shots and, you know, Paul Felder would eat three punches but give Dan Hooker a leg kick. I feel like Justin Gaethje would do the exact same thing against Dan Hooker, but Justin Gaethje is a way stronger wrestler than Paul Felder, so I feel like if Dan Hooker tried to do, do those, you know, the, the double underhooks, um, I don't feel like he would have it as easy against Justin Gaethje as he would against Paul Felder. Really, uh, yeah, I really like those two fights. Good job to Dan Hooker, good job to Paul Felder. Can't wait to see those two back in the cage. So next on the list, we have the rematch, the rematch against Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. So just to give you a recap of the last fight, basically what it went down to was that a lot of people felt like Tyson Fury outboxed Deontay Wilder. And even though he did get dropped in two of the rounds against Wilder, a lot of people felt like Fury still should have won 10 out of the 12 rounds against Wilder, but it ended up in a draw, controversial draw. Wilder went on to... Both of them went on to fight one opponent each. Wilder looked way more impressive against his uh, knockout in, against Luis Ortiz. And uh, Tyson Fury, I forgot who he fought. He fought some Swedish lad. Tyson Fury fought... Let's see here. Otto Wallen. Um, yeah, so Tyson Fury, he ended up uh, fighting a guy named Otto Wallen from, what is that? Sweden. Yeah, from Sweden. And he looked really, really bad. Like, he didn't look that great in that fight. And Deontay Wilder fought Luis Ortiz, who is, you know, one of the top 10 heavyweights in the world and who is a, you know, pretty dangerous boxer himself. And Wilder not, ended up knocking him out. But in this fight, it was all Fury basically since, uh, from the beginning bell. And the first fight, what Fury did that was really, uh, what he did really well was that he did a very, very good job of avoiding Wilder's right hand for most of the fight. And the way they did that was that he was doing a really good job of using his jab, but not just sticking uh, Wilder with the jab by using a lot of feints and fakes to mess up the timing for Wilder's right hand. In the first fight, a lot of the trouble was that Wilder, what ended up happening was that Fury would step in as if to jab or uh, as, into, as if to jab and Wilder would swing, he would miss because Fury wasn't there at all. And then it was either he would swing miss fury and then he would use up energy for swinging and missing and then just look nobody wants to look like they're you know nobody wants to look bad while there's missing swings or he would have to wait a little bit try to see if what fury was throwing was a real punch and then in that window he would end up getting hit by that like actual jab while he was thinking so he was kind of in this heart the rock in a hard spot where he didn't know when the when to throw his own right hand the times that he was able to kind of corner Fury, Fury did a very good job of using something called uh, a leverage guard or a long guard, it's what it's called. So what that is, is that as the opponent throws their right hand, the defending fighter will throw his left hand over the shoulder, the rear shoulder of their opponent and duck their, right, their head down to their right. So basically what it does is that your lead shoulder is up in the way of the right hand and your back and your shoulder are kind of deflecting the punch and you fall basically right into a clinch. So in this second fight, essentially what Fury did was that he, he got the timing down for these feints and fakes on Wilder a lot quicker because he just spent 12 rounds before with Wilder. So a lot of the time uh, when fighters first meet each other, they, they can be very tentative, you know what I mean? They can be very tentative because they're scared to get caught. And as the fight, as, as you saw, even in the very last round of the last fight, 
Wilder knocked down Fury with the le uh, right hand left hook, and it looked like Fury was out, but Fury got up, and he started, he, in my opinion, if it wasn't for that knockdown, Fury would have won that round anyways, because he went right back to work and started hitting Wilder a lot. And so it looked like the tentativeness of Fury was all gone, and he went straight to work. It was funny because Fury, almost within like the first minute, got hit by a right hand by Wilder, but it still didn't scare him or dissuade him from being more, uh, more aggressive. And not more aggressive as in like he was just trying to land more punches, but he was less tentative to throw his power punches. He would come in and he did an amazing, amazing job. It was like a Fury basically showed you how to use the jab in 20 different ways because the jab in boxing is the most versatile weapon that you can have because it can be used in so many different ways and it, you can give an opponent so many different looks with the jab that it can throw their whole game off. So what did uh, Fury do? Uh, Fury was a uh, Fury against did a very good job of uh, fainting and faking with the jab. So he had Wilder reaching and throwing punches for uh, when he thought that Fury was stepping in with the jab, but he actually wasn't. He's doing good with his shoulder feints, you know, flicking out the jab or just just pumping out his shoulder enough to make Fury uh, to make Wilder believe that he was about to step in and try to catch Fury with a punch. Uh, Fury went to the body with the jab. He did a good job of hooking off the jab, and that's a very, very uh, awesome technique because uh, in the very first round, Wilder, what he did a lot was that he was actually uh, he was reaching a lot for the for the jab, but the jab would uh, uh, Fury would flick out the jab or shoulder pump as if he was about to throw the jab. Wilder would reach out with his right hand, and all of a sudden, a left hook would come around and hit, uh, hit Wilder. So he was doing a really good job with that. Uh, just messing up the timing, he would do like kind of like a stutter step where he would step in with the jab, and then in instead of the, the stutter jab is really cool because you step in as if you're about to jab. The opponent, you see your opponent's reaction, and you flick out your jab afterwards. So it's not, you don't have the full weight of your body behind the jab, it's more of a shoulder punch, but it really throws off your opponent's timing and uh, what they're expecting from you with the jab. And this is essentially what was happening with, that's what Fury was doing in the first fight, but this time around he got right to it in round one. And um, in the first fight, a lot of the fight was him circling on the outside, trying to avoid Wilder, but this time he was coming forward, using the jab as an offensive weapon, and he was more willing to throw his power punches, because almost right off the bat, you saw Wilder start, uh, you saw Fury starting to commit to his own right hands. And uh, just, like, uh, just like before, when uh, Fury would throw the right hand, and uh, Fury felt uh, when Wilder would throw the right hand, and Fury felt like it, he wasn't safe, or he felt like he had misjudged or miscalculated uh, the range or his punch. He would do the leverage guard slash long guard thing, where he would post, he would throw his uh, left arm over Wilder's shoulder. He would deflect the right hand off of his shoulder and back, and he would just grab a clinch. Another thing that he did really great was uh, the clinching. Uh, one thing that a lot of people are uh, a lot of people have noticed that basically Fury just kept on grabbing a guillotine on Wilder. What he would do is that Wilder would duck in for the, they would fall into the clinch or Wilder would duck in for the clinch and Fury would grab his head as if he was about to guillotine choke him. And, you know, even if you're not, like, Fury is a big dude. He's 270 pounds. So even if he's just giving a light squeeze on your neck, one, the way that it is, the one, you know, you're not going to be able to breathe properly in the clinch, so you're you're losing breath. If that will obviously affect your cardio. Two, it, um, um, and two, because Fury's weight is over the top of your shoulders, your head is basically holding up the weight of this 270 pound man, and that's going to wear you out as well. You're going to be using your lower back muscles. They're going to be using a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of strength to hold up 
the 270-pound man that's leaning on top of you. And it was interesting because it looked like the best thing that Wilder was doing was that he was landing his own jabs. Wilder uh, was actually, I think, like the first two or three punches that Wilder landed were just body jabs. And the first right hand that he landed off of, uh, landed on Fury near the beginning of the first round was uh, he went to the body jab and threw a right hand over the top. And that's like a Mayweather classic. Mayweather would love to go to the body jab. He would hit the opponent three or four times with a body jab. Their hands would naturally start dropping. And then he would fake the body jab and come up with a left hook or overhand right. That was like his... If you watch his fight with Diego Corrales Jr., Mayweather's fight with Diego Corrales Jr., that was a workshop on how to land... Like, how the body jab plays with the left hook and the overhand right. Anyways, round three starts... Uh, well, and um, <clears throat> anyways, round three. In round three, Fury manages to uh, he double jabs into a right hand that knocks Fury uh, Wilder down. Wilder stands up, beats the eight count, but it clearly really damaged something within Wilder's ear because his ear started bleeding really, really badly. And every single time that he got hit cleanly after um, that knockdown blood basically exploded out of his ear every single time. It almost looked like his brain was leaking. And to me, so after that, Wilder never really recovered. He was on wobbly legs the whole time. And I, like, to me, I don't, I haven't read anything, any stories, but I feel like maybe Fury ruptured or perforated his eardrum. And obviously, if you don't know, your eardrum has a lot to do with balance and your coordination. And when you have a damaged eardrum, it really affects your balance. So either he got rocked so hard by that right hand that he was never able to really like uh, clear his head and get back to work, or maybe his eardrum was uh, injured, or yeah, his like inner ear was injured, so he couldn't like his uh, equilibrium was off, so he couldn't really um, find his like balance or find his feet underneath him. And then from here, it's all it's all fury. He just keeps on landing the punches. He just keeps on landing punches. While they're really just on the back foot, just looks like he's exhausted. Looks like he's really hurt, and he's scared to throw his. He's scared to throw his own right hand because obviously every time he does throw his right hand, he either misses or he eats a couple hard punches for throwing his uh, right hand. And then what ends up happening is that from after that drop. Fury is looking for the finish, but every time he steps in to land his power punches, they end up falling in the clinch. And either what ends up happening is that Fury um, Fury is obviously way better in the clinch than Wilder. It's so obvious because Fury would be posting his head underneath Wilder's chin or underneath his head or his, uh, his nose or posting his head against Wilder's really bad ear and grinding on it. Or he would put him into that guillotine choke. And it just looked like the more Wilder fell into the clinch with Fury... The more tired he got, but it was saving him from uh, getting finished earlier in the fight. And then round five starts, and Wilder just looks exhausted, and Fury lands a left hook to the body of Wilder that drops him. And, but it doesn't drop him as in a way that, you know, he got hit really hard in the liver, and now your body's shutting down, so you got to take a knee, and you can't breathe because you're so winded. It just looked like Wilder was so hard that the force of the impact of the of the punch just threw him to his ass. And then uh, what ended up happening was that round seven, Fury corners Wilder. He doesn't hit him with too many punches. He hits him with a flurry, hits like two or three punches. And then Fury's corner ends up throwing the towel and the fight is over. Now in the aftermath of this fight, there is a lot of, I guess, like, um, I don't know. Basically, after the fight, what ended up happening was that Wilder ended up coming out saying that the reason why he lost the fight was because he felt tired. His legs felt tired because of the costume. His pre, his en- the costume that he brought in his entrance weighed too much. His, it weighed like 40 pounds and it weighed too much. And it... Uh, weakened his legs before the fight and that's why he's tired now obviously that's not the reason why he lost the fight he got he lost the fight because Tyson Fury was the better boxer 
but it just sucks that he would uh because i love those costumes those costumes look awesome like because the fighting industry is enter it's a part of the entertainment business you know what i mean and those when wilder walks out in those costumes it just look like he looks like a fucking badass bro his costume whoever is making those costumes are those are legit costumes they look awesome and i love the i love i love those uh pre-fight costumes and it kind of just adds to the Wilder mystique and the Wilder character. And I, I like them. I don't think there's a problem with them. But it sucks now that he's saying that because, well, now he's, uh, he's, he's using the rematch clause in his contract to get the rematch with Fury. Um, you know, fair enough. Whatever. That's what you usually see is that a champion will have a rematch clause in their contract just in case they do lose. Because what will happen is either one of two things. The, the champion will win the next fight, get the championship back. Or two, even if they didn't win the championship because it is a championship fight, their purse is going to be way, way larger. And uh, yeah, so I'm just curious, like, does that mean that in the next fight, he's not going to be wearing a costume or one of his masks that, that he likes? To, because I, I really like that part of Wilder's entrances. And two, there's rumors that he's going to be fighting. Uh, he's going to be firing the coach that threw in the towel for him during the fight. Uh, his coach Mark Breland, uh, Breland or Breland or however you want to say it says that he says that he's going to be departing ways with that coach because essentially because the coach saved his life because if you were watching that fight it literally looked like if Deontay Wilder took one more punch he would have died in that ring with he would have died in that ring with uh, Tyson Fury and it sucks because now the coach, the coach obviously did the right thing, but now he's going to be out of a job. But there's a lot of support from the internet, you know, backing up the coach saying that he did the right thing, which he obviously did. He did the right thing, uh, basically saving Fury from any unnecessary brain damage. It basically he gave Fury the opportunity to be able to fight another day. And it just sucks that Wilder. You know, it's obvious, like, if you're the champion and you lost, it's, you know, you got to save your own credibility by saying, you know, this will happen all the time. Whenever a champion, especially a dominant champion loses, they'll they usually come up with an excuse saying, you know, reasons F, you know, one, two, three, X, Y, Z, why I lost. But just sucks because these reasons are pretty, pretty piss poor. If I were Wilder... Wilder was basically saying that he would rather die in the ring than throw in the throw in the towel. But the thing is that Wilder, if he did end up dying in the ring, one, it looks really bad on the sport of boxing because you know we do you still have those people that are out there saying like it's a barbaric sport and then people die and it's such a violent sport that it should be banned and it obviously wouldn't do good for the image of boxing. And two, um, his. His uh, cornerman basically saved themselves because af in the aftermath of Wilder did end up dying because of this fight. Though the cornerman would be the cornerman and the ref would have been the people that would have taken most heat for not stopping the fight earlier and letting Wilder die. And they would have like you know it would have been the exact same situation. So good on Wilder's corner for throwing in the towel. I believe they did the right thing. And I feel like a majority of the people who watch the fight and the internet are saying that they did the right thing. And it just seems that maybe Wilder just is looking for an excuse to why the rematch will make sense or why he lost. And obviously, you know, a lot of fighters are very emotional and they'll try to lie to themselves to tell, like, you know, make up a reason why they lost a the fight. Which is really unfortunate. If I was Wilder, I would have probably said something like, um, when Fury dropped me the first time, it perforated my eardrum so my balance was off and I couldn't... You know, that's believable because it looked like there was blood fucking shooting out of his ear. So that could have been a believable story. I would have bought that. I would have been like, yeah. Like, it obviously destroyed his ear and his balance and some like something looked off as the fight continued. So maybe it was just his eardrum. Maybe if he didn't get his eardrum, pop, eardrum popped, he would still be able to stay in the fight but that's that you know 
Unfortunately, Wilder couldn't take the loss. Now Fury is the new um, W. Uh, uh, the WBC heavyweight champion and the ring champion and also the lineal heavyweight champion even though there's no belt for being the lineal heavyweight champion super super awesome good job on um, Tyson Fury and I would obviously the fight that everybody wants to see now is Anthony Joshua versus Tyson Fury but it seems like if we're going to get another wilder fight and who knows that fight could just be a continuation of this fight you never know in boxing and because Fury is such a like you know one punch knockout artist, maybe he does end up winning the rematch with Fury, and then we're gonna have to get another rematch between the two. But we'll see how that uh, plays out. Anyways, we'll see. I think uh, yeah, went on for about an hour. Good. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's basically everything that I, I wanted to cover today. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please like the uh, like the podcast or like the like the video. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Leave a comment behind about your thoughts on the podcast. Um, anything that I could work on, or anything in particular that you'd like me to uh, focus on talking on next week or next time around. If you're listening to this to any of the um, on any of the podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, you know. Leave a comment, a review. It really helps me out getting, uh, helps the discoverability of the podcast. That would be really awesome. I really, really appreciate that. Um, you can also find my uh, RSS feed, the podcast feed, in the description below. You can find this on a lot, any, any, basically any type of platform that you can think of. Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, you can find my podcast on. Um, also, follow me on my social medias just so you can get a little behind-the-scenes look. Um, oh, yeah, I'm fighting March 13th. I'm fighting. I'm having my second amateur fight March 13th in Alberta, Grand Prairie. I'm making my 145-pound 140, debut. Hopefully, that goes well. I'm planning on winning, but you never know. This is a crazy-ass sport. Hopefully, that goes well. Um, so, follow me on my social medias. That's Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, uh, Twitter, those are the main uh, social media outlets that I have, and I'll post the link. I'll post the links to all those platforms in the description below. I hope you um, enjoy the podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing me rattle on. I'm doing my best to get better at you know just like talking. I before I like my first episode, I had like a whole script that I just basically read off of, but now I'm just doing prompts. Just a little bit of like footnotes to just kind of lead lead the way on, and I'm doing a little bit more improv type of podcast. And I hope you guys enjoy that. And yeah, I hope. Oh, also, I'll leave a link to my the pay per view pay per view to my fight in the link as well, so you can watch that if you do choose. I think it's going to be like twenty dollars for the pay per view, and I don't know where I'm going to be on the card yet. The guy who's running the card, um, he's not the best at promoting it and putting it together but we'll see how that goes thank you so much everybody for listening i hope you enjoy the rest of the weekend next week we have joseph benavides versus da oh, what's this guy's name oh my god uc fight night 169 that's the next card joseph oh yeah uh joseph benavides versus uh figueredo that is for the lightweight cha- uh the flyweight championship and then after that the next week after we got uc 248 and then for the next two months, we have stacked UFC card after stacked UFC card. So I'll be talking about those UFC cards as well. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Peace out.